You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. About 2014, I was introduced to the lost gospel decoding the ancient text that reveals Jesus' marriage to Mary Magdalene. Well... I desperately wanted to review that important work, but we were so buried under other deadlines that I couldn't find the time to read and absorb because I read every book. I don't give it to someone else to read and give me questions. I read every book, and, well, I didn't have time to read 444 pages, but I'm still working on it. But, as karma would have it, tonight's guest for both hours is a legend in her own time in the New Paradigm Movement. Her name is Barbara Hand Clough, and she's going to tell us something about the Lost Gospel tonight as we review her own new book. Barbara Hand Clough is an internationally acclaimed ceremonial teacher, author, and Mayan calendar researcher. Her numerous books include Revelations of the Ruby Crystal, The Pleiadian Agenda, Alchemy of Nine Dimensions, Awakening the Planetary Mind, and the Mayan Code. She has taught at sacred sites throughout the world and maintains a website at www.handclow2012.com. Now, the name of Barbara's latest gem is Revelations of the Aquarian Age. It's published by... Baron Company, a member of the ITI, or Inner Traditions clientele, groups, anyway, anyway and, and that's the same company that publishes our work under Destiny Books, and whose owner and genius is good old brother Ehud Sperling. And this is Barbara's fourth appearance on 21st Century Radio over the past 31 years. Nikki Scully author of Sekhmet, Transformation in the Belly of the Goddess, said about Barbara's latest book, This fascinating novel illustrates the connection between Mary Magdalene, Jesus, and the hidden secrets of a bloodline that would threaten the very existence of conventional Christianity. It is riveting, and it helps explain many uncertainties about world religions and even our own government. It is a must-read. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, and congratulations on your latest book, Revelations of the Aquarian Age. Hi, Dr. Bob. Hi. <laughs> Haven't talked to you for quite a while. Well, it's been, uh, what, well, the last time you were on was in 1992. Yes, yeah, so okay. it has been quite a while. Yeah, it has been. Well, this book is just fabulous. I have really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much that I would not put a mark in it, and that's not the way I usually read books. I usually chop them up by by um, every page being well covered with all kinds of notes and everything. But this is such a beautiful book that I decided I'm not going to mark it up at all. Just on the back page where I put down a few notes. You mentioned Marcel Vogel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great yeah, guy. I've got, got quite a few crystals that he cut years ago. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. You got some big ones? Um, not that big. I actually have one nice, fairly big one. And one of the things that I've enjoyed about doing, now, now I've switched to fiction at this point, so I'm much freer. 
And so I'm enjoying um, giving crystal teachings, um, how to work with crystals. That's fabulous. And so, of course, Marcel Vogel is, is one is you know is is one of my um, assistants. That's for sure. Yeah, is he well, still with us? No, he he passed on unfortunately. Uh-huh. But boy, yeah. what a guy! Yeah. What a guy! And he and you know there are so many people that mistreated him. Um, but you know that was that was a bad time. That Karen was uh, late nineties or early nineties at that time. Anyway, well, you've written and published at least 12 nonfiction books since 1986, and now, with Revelations of the Ruby Crystal and Revelations of the Aquarian Age, you are writing fiction, as you just noted. Why did you switch to writing fiction? Well, as a matter of fact, what I always wanted to do from the beginning was write fiction, um, because I just absolutely love fiction. But I didn't, didn't see how, 35, 40 years ago, I didn't see how I could break in, in and get published. Um, so I started out with nonfiction and wrote 12 or 13, 14 books or whatever. And then when I hit age 70, um, five years ago, I decided it was time to do what I want to do. Yeah. And it's been a real, it's been, it's been hard for the publisher, hard for me, because a lot of my fans think that um, I've, I'm not doing the same type of work. But as far as I'm concerned, um, I think in this fictional trilogy, I think I'm giving out more information than I ever have before. I think you're going to... Because gonna... I have the freedom, you know, which is what I needed. You're going to have more readers because of that, that's for sure. This is an important topic. I'm, I'm so glad that... Uh... You got deeply involved in it. Uh, Revelations of the Aquarian Age opens during a wedding, and all the characters from Ruby Crystal are there. Since these characters were developed in Ruby Crystal, are the readers missing anything if they start with the Aquarian Age? Um, you, first of all, when you write a fictional trilogy, each book has to be a standalone. And so what I did, which is a typical um, technique, um, I bring all the characters that appear in Ruby Crystal, um, and they, they start right out in the first chapter at a wedding. And so you can read it by itself, um, or if you really want to really get to know the characters, um, then you're going to want to read um, Ruby Crystal also. Because in the first book in a trilogy, that's when you get the real development of the characters, their homes, their lifestyle, their, their things they're really thinking about. And then when you get into Aquarian Age, the, 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 the uh, novel starts to just take off because we already know them. Although when you, it's an interesting thing, when you tune in um, to the second book without the first one, um, people are telling me there's a resonance that they can feel in these characters besides the fact that I give enough data so that you understand who they are, obviously. So I would say it's a choice. Um, somebody can certainly start out with Aquarian Age if they feel like it. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense to me. I, I, I had quite, quite a good time reading your book. That's why I read it so slowly. Um, central focus of Aquarian Age is a painting of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Why, why is that a central theme? Well, um, what happened with this, this whole trilogy so far is, is I haven't plotted it or planned it. I just simply took off with the characters and let them do their thing. And so one of the central characters all the way through the trilogy, is a really fascinating Italian painter named Armando Pierleoni. And in the first book, in, in Ruby Crystal, um, Armando Pierleoni is a really bad guy. Um, he's a very complex, um, dark person who's dealing with a lot of possession issues. Mm-hmm. And then as we come into the uh, revelations of the Aquarian Age, he has already started transforming himself. And so one of the things that I really wanted to show throughout this trilogy was the transformation of people, because people can do it. Um, sometimes people think once somebody's lost, they're lost. 
And yet, in my experience, it's amazing how people can turn their lives around if they, if they get the opportunity at all. So as Armando wakes up and becomes um, a, a more of a um, kind of person that you and I'd like to hang out, he starts really being um, uh, connected to really, really high planes of consciousness. And so then he ends up getting married. And, of course, the novel starts out with the wedding right in the beginning. And then what happens is he goes through this amazing transformation with his wife. And so then what happens is the Jesus and Mary Magdalene archetype just comes right through him. You know, and one of the interesting things about that is, did you did you see um, the, the painting called Salvatore Mundi? No, I didn't. No. Did you see that? No, I didn't. Oh, okay, because this is one that was, it's been attributed to Michelangelo just about a year ago, and so it's, it's, it's kind of, or maybe it's Leonardo. No, I think it's Michelangelo. It's, it's a painting that's been around for a long time, but nobody really knew who painted it, and then it turns out it's a great master. And so the interesting thing is it's a painting of Christ, and it's really awesome. I mean, you just look at that painting, and it just takes you to some other place. And so the interesting thing is that one came through right when Armando's painting came through. So, I, so I, 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 it's interesting when you're writing fiction, you're really working with the muse, and you're really working with creative fields, and then all kinds of synchronicities have been happening all around me in relationship to what I'm actually writing. Did any of that experience filter into the way you were living and things that came to uh, be important to you during that period? Uh, well, I, yeah, I think that, that writing, writing in this way is really changing me. Um, I'm finding that my access to um, many dimensions is definitely intensifying. Wow. Now, sometimes I think that's just a matter of the times because we are definitely in the middle of a huge opening right now. We sure are. And um, I'm an astrologer also, as you know. And so one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to track the end of the age of Pisces and the opening of the age of Aquarius. That was one of my goals. And so I chose the period 2011 through 2020 in order to to track the uh, shift into Aquarius. And that has turned out to be really prophetic. Um, I, I don't know how I could have figured it out back in 2011, but somehow I did. Well, your and, intuition is very great. I mean, well, then plus astrology. Yeah. You know, oh well, you know. put them but right together. now. We are really at a mind-bending moment where the where the changes that are happening in the fields around us, including multi-dimensional fields, are extremely intense. And so the novel, for me, has been in uh, it, writing because I'm still I'm writing the third book now. And it's been an attunement method, almost like playing a piano in relationship to the shifting of the fields. Mm -hmm. Well, look, we're coming upon our first break of this hour. And when we come back, let's talk about the age of Pisces and how it differs from the age of Aquarius as we're moving into. We'll be back with our guest, Barbara Ann Clow, Revelations of the Aquarian Age, Bear and Company. This is Elaine Pagels, author of the Gnostic Gospels and also of a new book called Revelations, Visions, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation. I'm a professor of religion at Princeton University, and you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hrana. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Barbara Hand Clowes, our guest for both hours, Revelations of the Aquarian Age, Bear and Company. you got to get a copy of this book. It's extremely important, and you'll find out if you keep listening. www.handclow.com 2012.com Barbara uh, 
I know your book is fiction, but there is so much in it that's fact. I mean, I gained a better understanding of why America is viewed the way uh, the book handles this particular situation. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really happy to learn that. I'm happy in a certain sense of finding out the truth. So much is hidden that is not talked about in this country about what we've been doing warring over there with this part and that part, etc. Well, many of the characters uh, talk about the end of the age of Pisces, how things are changing as Pisces goes away. What's the theme of the age of Pisces? Um, the theme of the age of Pisces was the development of organized religions. And you, we, we actually can understand it even better by looking at the last 4,000 years instead of just two. Because before the age of Pisces, we have the age of Aries. And you notice they go backwards, Bob, which is always very confusing. It has to do with the um, precession of the equinoxes. And so if we go back to the age of Aries, which is about 4,000 uh, to 2,000 B.C., we have the development of organized uh, warfare on this planet. And um, that, of course, was because before 4000 BC, there wasn't much evidence for, for uh, warfare, just, just the normal camp robbing and you know, the normal things that people do. And so then when we come into the age of Pisces, um, which, which started around uh, 2000 years ago, I mean, excuse me, 2000 BC, um, when we come into the age of Pisces, um, it's time for the development of spirituality. And because that's basically, the Pisces has to do with contact with spirit. But at this period of time, um, because of the age of warfare and the, the uh, development of the religions coming from Abraham, um, what happened uh, around 2000 B.C. was we started having wars for God. And so what we had is we had 2,000, wait, you know what, Bob, I'm 2,000 years off. <laughs> Excuse me. The age of Pisces began around 0 A.D., and the age of Aries is back to 2200 B.C. So I just, I just went all the way back to the age of Taurus almost automatically. So if we come up to 0 A.D., which is the beginning of the age of Pisces, we have the beginning of Christianity and, of course, the further development of Judaism and also the introduction of Islam in the 8th century. And so the whole age of Pisces from around 0 A.D. up until our current moment in time was the development of organized religion. And what has happened with that is, as I said earlier, even though my timing was off, um, it, the or development of organized religion comes on top of the development of organized warfare. Mm -hmm. And so now, as we come up to the, to the entrance into Aquarius, which is really happening now, we're really moving. It, 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 when we move into a great age, it actually is a transition over a period of about two or 300 years. But there's a core central point in the transition that's kind of like a um, vortex where there's, there's a tremendous um, shifting going on because of the letting go, the influence of letting go of the old age and the bringing in of the new. And so needless to say, um, letting go of organized religion is not easy for, for people on this planet. And that's what we're experiencing. The secrets are coming out. The truth is being told because people are not willing to be controlled um, by organized religions anymore. I mean, of course, some people are very willing to be controlled, but there's a huge transition going on. Well, there certainly is. Uh, I think we haven't quite seen the end of what's going on with the, the extreme fundamentalists because they have been positioning themselves to announce that this is a Christian nation 
and that all other and the kind of Christian nation they're talking about is uh, not going to include any any of the types of Christian traditions that we have today. Uh, their their key is that, and that's not necessarily what Trump is trying to do, but that's what they have been trying to do, and they are succeeding uh, in a certain sense. Would you want to comment on that? Well, I I think what would I like to say about that? Because boy, it's a really big topic. It is. Um, but I think that you have to add in the fact that the Christian fundamentalists also think that this is the end of the world. Um, they basically believe that this is the time of the apocalypse. And this is probably the biggest reason why I'm working so hard with this trilogy, because what we're experiencing now is not an apocalypse. What we're experiencing is a transition into a whole, a whole uh, uh, new, new age of consciousness. And so the, the fundamentalists are very, very active right now because they believe that this is the end, and right. they believe that they should do this or that in relationship to that, you know. Yeah, they're they're also embracing UFOs now for the first, <laughs> the first time. When they they we're di- denying them for a long time, uh, but they're saying that you know we had, our our listening audience is extremely to the right, and we actually do have listeners here that years ago would call in and say yes, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to bring a machine gun. And he's going to get even. We've had, yeah, and, and then notice what's going on in Jerusalem and in Israel, because the movement for the U.S. embassy to um, be in Jerusalem and to have um, American power be more allied with Israel is, is part of, of the, um, the, the uh, intended apocalypse. Their people actually believe that if they can um, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, right now we're only talking about the embassy, but the temple will be next. And they believe that if they can build the temple, then Jesus could come flying out of the skies and he'll have a temple to land in. And needless to say, um, this, is, this isn't this is even nursery school. <laughs> I, I know, but... <laughs> you know what I mean? You know? I know. And then, and then speaking of the UFO issue, this is, it's interesting that you brought that up. Because um, one of the things that will happen during Aquarius is we will have um, a open an open universe. Um, what has happened to us just just because of a, a whole series of events on this planet, including cataclysms eleven, twelve thousand years ago, um, what has happened on this planet is the planet has been su- shut down, kind of into a, a, a state of fairly intense fear. And what has happened is it, it's shut people's consciousness down in terms of their contact with other dimensions. And when I talk about UFOs, um, you don't have to believe in spaceships, although I think spaceships are a part of this issue. But I think it's a much, much bigger um, landscape than just the issue of flying saucers landing. Um, I think that we are all in the middle of actually opening to other dimensions and therefore to other consciousnesses. And this is really this is really the, the issue. Like when you talk about UFOs, I like to open up right wide to many, many dimensions and not just flying saucers, which yeah. I'm sure you do too. Well, yes, indeed. You said it so well. Congratulations. That's really... Uh, uh, some things are coming out so quickly now about Antarctica and so many other areas of this world that we thought we understood and... Unfortunately, also, we're beginning to see a, another view of the history of Adolf Hitler 
and went and and how he escaped and eventually got to South America, maybe Venezuela. I saw the photographs of that. Um, excuse, yeah. I, I'm getting carried away. I, I apologize. Well, if you can imagine it now, look look back to the trilogy and the first book. Um, basically covers about 2011 through 2015. And then the second book, Aquarian Age, covers about 2015 up to 2018. And then the third book is going to be like 2018 through 2020, basically up to 2021. Mm -hmm. And so I'm having to actually, uh, as you know from reading Aquarian Age, uh, the book, the basis basis behind the book is very factual. Yes, it is. Um, I'm, I'm going along with the timeline. And the issue of the change of the ages would be, if it's going to be successful, it's the selection that you cover in the timeline that's so critically important. In other words, you could talk about a million things. But what you need to do is you need to pick out the things that are changing in our reality um, that actually are, are going to show us, like how Pisces is ending and Aquarius is going forward. And so, in my case, here I am forced to track Donald Trump, because there's no way you can leave Donald Trump out of this. He's not in the first two books, but he shows up at the end of Aquarian Age, and then we're having to deal with him. And just imagine trying to write about this. But, but somehow I have to trust that I'm... I, what I do, Bob, when I sit down to write, is I go into an extreme altered state, and I go into a, a state of deep, deep meditation, and then I just go into focus. And so regarding Donald Trump, what's, I'm, I'm writing the third book right now, and what, what he is turning out to be is kind of like a St. Paul in a way. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, because oh St. Paul came along right, right as soon as Jesus died or, or went to the eastern part of the world. We're not sure which. Um, as soon as Christ was out of the picture, um, St. Paul took over. And he, just like Trump, he came in and he just started just throwing things away, throwing away the, the teachings on food, throwing away circumcision, you name it. And he just started throwing everything away because something new, because something, he was going to create something new. And so Christianity is not really Christianity based on Christ. It's, it's, it's Pauline Christianity. It's, it's Paul's religion, you know? Would you go into some more detail about uh, Paul? Because... Reminds me of part of my family. I, you know, I was adopted into the Hieronymus family, and uh, they were very proud of St. Jerome, because that's St. Hieronymus. And uh, there are things about him that I'm, I've never been happy about. Uh, so I, I, when I talk to the other members within the family, I have to be very careful, because they're very proud, and I'm kind of more than embarrassed. I'm angry about the, uh, what he did. Uh, yeah. And a whole, you know, that's something else altogether. Oh, oh, wait, before we get too carried away here, one of, I, I, this, I will need to get to this. There's a lot of words in here I might be mispronouncing, Barbara, but I'll do the best I can. I'm just an artist. Now, one of your characters is a New York Times reporter, writes about the Jesus family tomb in Jerusalem. Yeah. The Talpiot, Talpiot? Yeah, Talpiot tomb. You hey, I got it. I got it. I got a B. Yeah, you got it right. Yeah, yeah, wait a second. is a sub is a, is a suburb of Jerusalem. Ah. And it's in the area where all of those tombs were were um, dug out uh, mm-hmm. two thousand years ago. And so it's 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 basically. Um, and you have, had you heard of it, Bob? I've heard of it, yes, but I've not yeah. been there. Yeah, but but you heard about this whole issue. Basically, um, archaeologists have found 
the Jesus family tomb. Yep. And it had 10 members of the family um, buried in it, or in, they're in ossuaries. They, what they do is they, um, they put bones in boxes called ossuaries. And also, it's also the, the, probably the tomb also of Joseph of Arimathea, whom we see in the Bible, because what happens is Joseph of Arimathea um, got Jesus' body after, after the uh, crucifixion and then t- took the body, and that's basically how it got into the tomb. But we're living in an amazing time because the actual tomb of, of, of Jesus and his family has actually been discovered. There's a huge attempt to cover it up, but it's not really successful. And one of the things readers will find with my book is I don't have footnotes and, and bibliographies and all that because it's is fiction. But what happens is the characters, when they're talking to each other, they'll mention the title of a book. And so already in interviews, people are, people are saying, well, now what's going to happen is now people are going to read your book and they're going to have to read 10 or 15 or 20 other books, right? Yeah, well, I'd be but, doing some good if they did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, as you know, I was a publisher for 20 years. I'm yeah. not at this point. I'm, I'm not working at Bear anymore. But um, I loved bringing uh, books to the public and I loved finding gems that people would, need, would like to read. And so one of the things going on in this trilogy is a presentation of background material. And so all the, all the um, titles are there. There's a number of books about the Jesus family, too. And also a film was made in 2007. James Cameron, the um, director of Avatar, um, made a film about the Jesus family, too. Oh, which I've just, you know, I so haven't this seen is, it. This, it's amazing. I mean, you know, here we have this incredible thing happening, and yet the, the you know, Roman Catholics don't care. The church is doing everything it can to keep this quiet, because the problem is, well, how do you deal with the resurrection if he was buried in a tomb? And had a family. Yeah, so it goes against the, what I call the fairy story, because there's the Christian fairy story, Yeah, and um, most of it's untrue. But meanwhile, this man, Jesus, or Christ, was a great being, was yes. an incredible um, being, and, and uh, Judaism and Islam and Christianity all recognize that. But what they've done is they've just distorted the story so much that it just is intolerable. It For is example, intolerable. For example, Jesus was married, did have a family, did have children, and people have got to start realizing that that's true. Well, one of the, oh, excuse a real me. man and also a great, great spiritual teacher. Indeed. Oh, we got to take a break. Oh, time out here on the playing field with Barbara Hanclough. Hi, this is Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin. I am a Jungian analyst, an author, and an advocate for a United Nations, this NGO, World Conference on Women, and the author of Goddesses in Every Woman and Like a Tree. And I've just been interviewed on 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and we have covered the waterfront from contemporary to archetypal to activism to all kinds of things. I think you will enjoy the program. I can be found at www.jeanbolin.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Our guest is Barbara Han Clow. The book is Revelations of the Aquarian Age, Baron Company, www.hanclow2012.com. And I was so excited just the other day, Barbara, that I saw that the women in Houston have joined the Me Too movement and are opening their mouths about how they have been abused. And this is really important because Houston, um, 
which unfortunately is going to be flooded again and again and again, uh, has has been really uh, one of the one of the few parts of Texas that that women have been able to move into this direction. I'm really happy for them. Did you hear about that? I did hear about that. As a matter of fact, I was kind of, I had kind of a busy week with relatives, but I missed that. Yeah. And you notice that the background, um, you didn't read Ruby Crystal, right? No, I, no, I don't yeah, have Okay, because the background, um, each one of the, the books has a background theme. And the background theme for Ruby Crystal is priestly sexual abuse. And it's really interesting how prophetic that whole thing has turned out to be, because this, this is going back five or six years ago now. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, things are breaking out and coming out at the surface. And so um, there's, there's a strong background theme of, of abuse issues. And I think it's one of the most important topics of our time. It is. Because, as you know, I'm also the author of a book called Awakening the Planetary Mind. And Awakening the Planetary Mind surveys around 20,000 years of human consciousness and history and anthropology. And the theme of Awakening the Planetary Mind, which, by the way, was originally titled Catastrophobia, and I really like the original title better, so some some listeners may have actually um, read Catastrophobia, which means fear of cataclysms, fear of catastrophes. But what happened on our planet is around 11,500 to 13,000 years ago, um, we had a a, a series of cataclysms on this planet that... um, caused extreme weather changes and volcanic and telluric activity and the end of it, for example, is the end of the Pleistocene age and the opening of the Holocene age. And so um, I really believe after studying this topic and writing about it for so many years, um, I really do believe that those of us who live on this planet at this time, that basically we're a multi-traumatized species. Yes, we are. And what's happening is we're waking up at this point from the, the from the, the trauma that occurred so long ago, and that and so one of the things that goes on with this kind of trauma is it's passed generation after generation after generation, and it shows up in violence and abuse. And so what we're right in what we're in the middle of now is beginning that we're beginning to start to refuse to tolerate the violence and the abuse. And it's, it's that even though it, I, I don't remember a time in my lifetime where it seemed as difficult as, as it seems to be right now. But on the other hand, we really are making progress. Yeah, we are. It's, you can see in the Me Too movement, you can see it in, in um, there actually, I think, I think I'm beginning to see signs that war may be um, starting to go back the other direction. Um, we'll see about that. Yeah, I hope so, too. Well... Um, of course, priestly sexual abuse in the Catholic Church was a main theme of Ruby Crystal, and the healing of abuse victims is the theme in the Aquarian Age, is healing from abuse needed as we enter the Age of Aquarius. Yeah, it's just an absolute necessity. Um, and it's also, like I say, it's going into those deep memory data banks that actually go back to, to the series of cataclysms. And what's happened to us, you and me, during our lifetimes, is that when we first um, started becoming intellectual and studying things, those were the days when everything, according to geology, was uniformitarianism, yeah. and everything supposedly was 
slow and not changing that much. That's and right. then we've lived during the awakening of the, um, the, the memory of the cataclysms. It started with Velikovsky in the 70s, and now at this point, scientifically speaking, um, even, I've been writing about this for years and years, but finally scientists have caught up with what some of the researchers are saying, and science is now acknowledging the extreme level of destruction that we experienced on this planet. And it's just like if you were abused as a child, you can't really recover from that until you recover the memory. And so it's the same thing with our planet. If we don't have the correct story of what happened on our planet, then we, we can't wake up to the consciousness of the planet. You see what I mean? Sure. We've been, we've been in a deep sleep because we've been given very, very bad data. And so in my case, my grandfather was, was half Cherokee. And he was a Cherokee record keeper. And the Cherokee record keepers, like most native indigenous people, they tell the story of the cataclysm. Mm -hmm. And so I was taught as a child by my grandfather that our planet went through those events. And so when I went to school um, back in the 1950s, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on in school because the story I got from my grandfather didn't match up with what we were taught in school. Indeed. Yeah, that's um, that's not unusual. <laughs> yeah, right. But but having how fortunate for you to have a Cherokee grandfather. So you must be at least uh, 30, 40 percent Cherokee. In my case, I'm, I'm I think I'm one eighth. I think yeah, one eighth. One eighth. I think yeah. Jimi Hendrix. I think is one sixteenth. But most importantly, in this case, first of all, most of us have native blood, especially anybody who's coming out of families that have been on the East Coast for more than 200 years. You know, everybody does, you know. So I don't think that's any big deal, but I was given the teachings. In other words, I'm part of the lineage because he trained me. And so that's what's special about it, and that's the material that I covered in, in Catastrophobia that then became Awakening the Planetary Mind. Well, on page 297, you note that... Uh the blood of Mary and Jesus thrives in the indigenous peoples of America as well as European lineages. And I was going to ask you, could you go into some detail on that? Yeah, this is the research of William F. Mann. It's, it's either Mann or Mann. It's M-A-N-N -N is his name. And he's written uh, a couple of books. first one uh, on this topic was Templar Meridians. That came out about, I think, six, seven years ago. And then the latest book is called Templar Sanctuaries in North America. And this is a whole book about how the Templars uh, came across the sea and came um, to America in, in the 1300s, and um, in other words, way before Columbus. And, of course, you and I both know that the whole Columbus thing is great, another great big lie to cover up the truth. But um, once the um, Templars came over here, um, according to, to William Mann, um, they ended up traveling um, across the United States and eventually ended up going to the Four Corners area in, yeah. in, in the Southwest. And so in my book, what happens is the characters are reading, read, it's the typical of the way I'm doing it, the characters are reading William Munn. But then what's going to happen is anybody who really gets curious about this, you've got to read William Munn because he's the one who has really covered this data bank. And it's fascinating stuff. For example, um, the Algonquin um, uh, sacred rituals are very, very close to the, to the Templar and Masonic rituals in terms of the degrees and the, the way that the, uh, the uh, story comes down through the, through the degrees of initiation. 
And William Mon knows what he's talking about. He's the head of the Templar Order in Canada. Well, there, there's a very important connection there. And, of course, somewhere in there uh, is the League of the Iroquois and, and others because of the League of the Iroquois literally were teachers of our founding fathers. Sure. And unfortunately, well, most people up there in Boston, and, and yeah, uh, I read they that know book. it. I like that book. <laughs> yeah, that was a real important work. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. Um, so that, and I would have, you know, I don't know how many scores of shows I've done on the history of Discovery and National Geographic, but they won't let me talk about the Iroquois. They won't let me do it. And that's yeah. the reason why I, I and, well, I'm angry. Are, aren't the Iroquois part of the Algonquin Nation? Yes, they are. Yeah, that's what I thought. They're one of the tribes. Yeah, so, yeah. So the the thing is, is that unfortunately, you know, there's such heroes. And, and I mean, yeah. as, what, the, what they have accomplished is enormous. And it's unfortunate that America does not realize that Franklin, Jefferson, and Washington, all all of the founding fathers were their students. They they allowed them to come into uh, the uh, Philadelphia's Hall. There, I can't remember the name of it right now. But they were there, and they were their teachers. And it was it's a can. Many people have attacked me on this, but they're dead wrong. The the no, information. No, you're is there. absolutely right. And the unfortunate thing is, we have we have a great. Con- I used to be an American. Now I'm Canadian, but. You have a great constitution, and the only problem is it's being dumped at this point. Yes, it has. Yes, yeah, it, has. it has. It's been dumped, and it, and it, it served um, the United States very, very well for more than 200 years, but unfortunately it's being trashed at this point. Yes. Um, a few of the characters, David Appel, no, is it Pietro Pirolinioni? Pierre Leone. Hey, I almost got fine. that. Hey, I'm growing up here. And, <laughs> and Loren. Yeah, let's, let's tell our listeners, too, that one of the reasons that we have such strange names here is the, is the uh, trilogy is set in mostly in, in Rome and Tuscany. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's set in Rome and Tuscany is because there's a whole energy configuration um, in Italy that is the, re, is, it's the energy configuration behind the Vatican. And so ultimately, as we move into the age of Aquarius, um, we're going to see some kind of fall of the Vatican. It, it could be just an extreme shrinkage of the Catholic Church, which is already definitely going on. Or it, it, the Catholic Church could actually crash, uh, could crash. But um, I'm, after um, Rome and Tuscany and that part of Italy, because of the energy in that part of the world, and I'm still doing a lot of um, research on that, um, I'm actually traveling there again next next year to do more. Well, we got to call time out at the top of the hour here, and uh, you'll return with us next hour, Barbara, and we'll continue on our journey. Barbara Hanclough, Revelations of the Aquarian Age. In the old days, we used to call it the Aquarium Age, and uh, that was a big laugh, right? Baron Company, www.handclough2012.com. But first, I'll tell you, our guest is Barbara Hanclow, Revelations of the Aquarian Age, Baron Company, www.hanclow2012.com. Do you think this is an important book? Yes, we do. Uh, Barbara, you referred to an important work of Ahmed Osman, who joined us here on 21st Century Radio in 2003 and 2004 to review his Baron Company books, Moses and Akhenaten, and the Hebrew pharaohs of Egypt. What What's your perspective on the possibility that Akhenaten and Moses 
may have been the same person. I've come to the point where I believe that. And for me, it goes back to, to Freud. Um, and Freud wrote a book called, um, let's see, I don't know the title. It might be just Moses Akhenaten. That's right. Sure. I, I don't, is that right? Yes, ma'am. Um, and I read that years ago, and I really resonated with it because I'm very, I'm very well, I'm very knowledgeable in Egyptology. And there was just something about Akhenaten that just never fit, never was part of, of the program, his, his belief system and the way things worked in Egypt. And so then, in the meantime, um, his personality fits Moses. And so then, as you know, with Ahmed Osman, um, he's done us a big favor. And I, I never met him. I always wanted to meet him because I admire what he's done. What he's done is he's used his Islamic um, scholarly tools to help us uh, get a better um, perspective on who um, Moses was. And a lot of people just forget about the fact that from one point of view, um, the Koran and the Islamic teachings are an advance on Christianity. Yes, and I don't mean that they're better or more positive, but in terms of timing, they, these, these teachings came in 700 years after Christianity. And so they have a perspective um, in them that Ahmed Osman, fortunately, was willing to tease out for us, which is that the it, it, more important than Moses and Akhenaten, Dr. Bob, is the issue of the type of Christianity in the Koran, because the Christianity that's in the Koran is actually closer to the authentic early Christianity than the Bible is. And the reason that this happened is that Christianity in the beginning was a Jewish religion, because after all, Jesus of was course. A Jew. Of course. And then as the ages uh, began to transform, as we went into the age of Pisces, Christianity became a new religion. And as you know from earlier discussion tonight, it was basically taken over by St. Paul, who, who changed the basic teachings of original Christianity. And so for me, I, I have a very, very profound relationship with Jesus and with Christ. I always have had, in spite of religion. <laughs> I've got my own relationship with this great being. And um, Ahmed Osman has done such a good job of, bringing, of showing how the Islamic understanding of Christianity is probably closer to the original than, than Christianity is. And I think that's a great gift to us. Yes, it is. And I was, you know, I was pretty shocked <laughs> back there in 2002 before I bumped into reading his stuff. Uh, and it's, it's um, he's an amazing guy, I think. Yeah, and you know, it's so hard if you've been given an indoctrination, you know, in religion or in your life, and then you run into somebody like Ahmed Osman who has a completely different perspective on it. I don't know what it's like for you, but when I first encounter that new perspective, I almost can't see it at all because the indoctrination is so intense. Yeah. You know, you know what I yeah, mean? Sure. So what I did with Ahmed Osman's work is I just kept reading him and kept listening to him and kept on working on how does this fit in relationship to what I know and finally came to the point where as far as Moses and Akhenaten are concerned, I think it's a slam dunk. Yeah, thank you. Thank you Akhenaten so much. Akhenaten bopped out of Egypt and went over to Israel and changed his name or over to mm -hmm. Sinai and, and, or even into Canaan and um, changed his identity. 
just, just well, we yeah. we were very much involved in the Akhenaten Temple project. Um, I, I was uh, I was a student of, of well, certainly I can remember times in Egypt uh, painting murals, and that's no surprise to anybody. Uh, but but I, I, I that's when I enjoyed so much our going to Egypt and under the auspices of uh, how in the world could I forget his name right now? He was assassinated and and uh, by his own people, and for some reason it's Sadat Anwar Sadat. My God, how could I forget that? That's an amazing. When you get old, it's... you said you're seventy four and I'm yeah. seventy five. So yeah, I actually managed for the first time in my life to screw up its age at the great ages by two thousand years early on in this show. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have to be kind to ourselves. Right? I know, but, but you know he. It was he was so different when we met him and spent time with him. It was so different, and his wife is so lovely. Uh, and I felt so poorly for her because because she could not say what she knew, and so every time we got together, it had to be uh, we really couldn't talk about a lot of things uh, that. But but you know, it was he when I first met him. I gave him a gold. Uh, a gold great seal of the United States, a medal that has the front side of the great seal and the reverse side, the pyramid in the triangle. And I gave it to him and he looked at me and he said, Bob, this is a magical talisman. Take a look at above the great pyramid. And what do you see? That pyramid side, he says, is Egypt. The other side, look above the eagle's head, and you see a six-pointed star. And that six-pointed star is Israel. And that his coming together with Israel, or trying to bring those two nations together, was what really was the kind of thing he he really wanted to, to, to see happen more than just about anybody in the world. And of course, then he was assassinated by his own people, and, and, and that... We had to go back to Egypt several times, but we never knew that they that a good many people there just hated him for what he did, and that uh, it was it's, it's hard to see and feel that kind of stuff. And I'm sorry to get us uh, off on another direction here, and my boss is yelling at me in the other room. It's a good thing you can't hear. So <laughs> let's go back to <laughs> now. You got some other big names here. Uh, Lorenzo Giannini. Yeah, Lorenzo Giannini. Okay, a Roman Jungian analyst conducts yeah. really amazing past life sessions with his characters. Yeah. Why? He's the major character. Yeah. Yeah, he's a major character. So let me tell you an interesting story. Um, when it came time to, cha- to switch over to fiction, um, I sat in my writing room um, with a tablet and a pen, and I started tuning in. And what happens for me is the Pleiadians really do guide me. Um, they've guided me my whole life. And so I put it out there that um, I wanted to write fiction, and how was, I, how was I to begin? This is back in 2011. So what happened was the Pleiadians transmitted three pages of, of writing to me that were it, what it was was the names of the characters, their ages, their background, their religion, their basic psychology, 
In other words, I ended up after a couple of hours with the list of the characters um, mm. that are that are in Ruby Crystal and then Aquarian Age, and will be in the third book also. And so the only character who wasn't on the list was Lorenzo Giannini. So then what happened was I started writing Ruby Crystal, and I'm writing furiously. Each one of them is taking me about two years. So I'm writing away furiously and all this, and then I hit a block. I hit a complete wall because my character, Armando Pierleoni, the painter, who's a really bad guy in the first book and is a seducer and all sorts of stuff, and he finally hit a wall, and I didn't know what to do anymore. I was just stuck with, well, where is this going to go? And then Lorenzo Giannini appeared in my writing room, and he literally appeared. And he wasn't physical the way you and I are, but you know how it is when a presence comes in? It, it's very palpable. You can really get in touch with this energy field. Mm-hmm. So then what happened was he said, well, Barbara, you didn't realize that, Loren- that, that Armando, now Armando's the bad guy, and he said, you didn't know that Armando has been in analysis with me for 10 years. Holy cow. And that's where he came from. Oh. Yeah, it was really amazing, and he has turned out to be just a fantastic character. Yes, he is. Yes, yeah, he and then is. in the third book, he's like the kingpin, because as you can see, the other characters, let's talk about the characters for a minute. There's a Jewish magus in this book, David Appel, who's like 65, 70 years old. Then Pietro Pierleoni, the Italian guy in Tuscany, he's a real magical guy. Third book, um, one of the de' Medici shows up. Alessandro de' Medici shows up. Um, so there's these really, really magical, um, magus-type characters. And what Lorenzo ends up doing, Lorenzo Giannini, the, the analyst, is he ends up um, doing sessions with almost all the people in the book. And then what happens, of course, is then everything is deeply interwoven. Well, your characters are also exploring extremely ancient timelines as far back as 17,000 years ago. That's right. How did you get there? Um, Well, there's another case of me working. Now, remember, what I said to you is I said in order to track this period of time, 2011 through 2020, I need to have a, a, a selection of detail that's going to carry the themes that I need to bring all the way through this period of time. And regarding the theme of 17,000 years ago, this is going into the work of Andrew Collins, one of my great friends, and the issue of the sickness mystery. Yes. Did yes. you get into any of that? Oh, yes. He's, yeah. he's coming he's, on our show again. Andrew, Andrew, and I'm doing this now in my own research. I'm also, right now, I'm back that far. Um, next year I'll be doing more work in Italy at that level. And so what's happening right now is sites are, as soon as Gobekli Tepe was discovered um, in 1995, that's the site in Turkey that's been carbon dated back to um, 9600 B.C. So it's 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 11,000 years old. So as soon as Gobekli Tepe was carbon dated and discovered, at that point, the whole timeline just went right back another five or 6,000 years. Oh. Uh, because, because until then, we were the oldest site that we knew about was Katohuyuk in mm-hmm. Turkey. Mm-hmm. And that one is about six to 7,000 um, B.C., but we don't know too much about that site. We, with Kato, with um, uh, Gobekli Tepe, we have a lot of information about it. 
And so then there's the issue. Just, just think about this for a minute. What about those cataclysms? Well, see, what happened was almost everything got wiped 11 to 13,000 years ago. And so the difficult thing is to push through even before those cataclysms, which is what Andrew's been doing and is what I'm doing. Um, because in order to recover the pre-catastrophic mentality, the part of ourselves that wasn't devastated, we need to get in touch with the consciousness that far back. And one of the few researchers that we've had who's, who's helped us with that at all is Sri Yuktashar, you know, the Indian guy who worked with precession. Oh, really? You know, you know and the yugas, the issue of yes. the long, uh, the long yes. uh, Vedic yes. cycles. And so we've had some researchers who have pushed back further, but that's mainly what I'm uh, attempting to do. So in the third book, the timeline is going back, way, way back. Well, right now we got to go way back to our Wayback Machine. As a matter of fact, Rocky and Bullwinkle will be very proud at this moment. <laughs> All right. So time out here on the playing field with Barbara Hand Clow, Revelations of the Aquarian Age, Bear and Company, www.handclow2012.com. This is Rian Eisler. I'm the author of The Chalice and the Blade, The Real Wealth of Nations and other books, and president of the Center for Partnership Studies. And I've just done an interview with Dr. Bob Hieronymus for 21st Century Radio, and I've really enjoyed it. So I encourage you to listen. And I also encourage you to go to our website, partnershipway.org. Well, welcome back here to 21st Century Radio with our guest, Barbara Han Clow, Revelations of the Aquarian Age, Bear and Company. Okay, all right, now. Okay, yeah. Um, you don't talk too much about Atlantis, but you do make a very important point in which what was it really like in Atlantis, uh, whereas today we are getting so many different stories about um, how, many, how many flying ships and everything else they had. What, what can you tell us about Atlantis? Well, I think the best source on Atlantis is definitely Plato's Timaeus, and I think anybody would agree with that in yeah. terms of the description, the location, etc. It's the earliest source, and I read a really wonderful book um, years ago called uh, Plato Prehistorian um, by, uh, let's see, uh, somebody said a guest. Um, really, really good book. And she points out that Plato really is the first serious historian. He comes right around the time of also of Herodotus and Thucydides, but we're starting to get real history at that point. And the really funny thing about Plato's descriptions of Atlantis is he gives a really explicit description of a war between the Magdalenians and the Atlanteans um, sometime, sometime back around 8 or 9, 10,000 B.C., something like that, in that range. And he really describes um, the Magdalenian people, and you can tell that these people are pretty typical, um, you know, Neolithic, early, fairly simple people, even though they also obviously had a mastery of energy technology. Um, we certainly can see that they uh, understood anti-gravity um, devices and could lift stones and stuff like that. There's no explanation, um, period for how they built some of the things they built unless they understood um, how to work with energy and how to work with gravity. And so the descriptions that 
are in Plato, are, there's nothing there about crystal temples and technological devices and blowing up Atlantis with nuclear or whatever. You know, all of that's just fantasy. And people, people who do that, they're projecting the current um, concern about technology into the past, and they buy into the idea that Atlantis destroyed itself and that we might destroy ourselves um, in, in the current moment. You know, you see what I mean? But, it, but in fact, um, there's no, you know, if we really look at what was going on in the planet, the Atlanteans were not partic- probably were not particularly technological. Well, I think that's very important because uh, I think some people are going off the map on this. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, you know, it's not hurting anyone really, but it's not accurate as far as I'm concerned. Now, there, I got to get to this point here. There, this is a story of European and American elites. Why explore their their reality now? To, to, to explore uh, European? Yes. Um, well. I am dealing with this issue um, from a more from an earth energy point of view. And um, did you ever interview Carl Kalaman, the Mayan calendar guy? No, no, I didn't. Have him on. Well, I oh yeah, I'm sorry. My boss is telling me yes, we did. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I wrote a book about Carl's uh, work called called the Mayan Code, and Carl came up with a whole analysis of one of the calendars, which is on a stell at Koba. That particular stell, which is a standing carved stone, that particular stell goes back 16.4 billion years, mm. right back to the Big Bang. Yeah. And so I have a great deal of respect for Kalaman's research. He's, he's a Swedish biologist. And one of the things that's in his book that intrigues me is the issue of a midline um, going, through our, going across our planet that basically it comes into Africa, basically where Gabon is located. Then it goes through Tunisia and up through Italy and up through Germany and up through Scandinavia. And that midline is 12 degrees east longitude. For instance, Rome is located uh, right close to 12 degrees east longitude. Mm -hmm. And so Kalaman really believes that the struggle between east and west um, actually occurs in relationship to this midline. And that this midline has a tremendous influence on us psychologically in terms of power complexes on this planet. So therefore, that's where the Vatican located itself. And so one of the things I'm doing in this trilogy is I'm exploring that midline. And boy, is it a gold mine. Um, What I'm looking into right now for the third book is the issue of Cyclopean walls being located on this midline. And Cyclopean mm. walls yeah. are the kind of walls that you see in, in Peru. Um, that Those kind of walls are or at the Osirin in Egypt or at the Valley Temple in front of the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Cyclopean, that means large stone, but I think that the Cyclopean remains that we have on this planet are the key to the pre-catastrophe period. In other words, that now we're going back... 13, 14,000 years, 17,000 years. And so what I'm finding in Italy, when I can get over there, is, you know, all those Tuscan hill towns? Yeah. yeah those wonderful little towns that, are mm-hmm. first of all, were Etruscan before they were Roman and all of that. Well, at the bottom of some of these hill towns are the original Cyclopean walls. Oh. And then the later stages 
are constructed on top of the Cyclopean walls. So right now I'm in the middle of a project trying to find as many of those as I can um, because it would appear that this midline has something to do with the stability of our planet. And what we haven't talked about yet tonight, Dr. Bob, is crustal shifting. I think we, we better. I think we better we talk. Haven't done, we haven't done pole flip and crustal shifting. I think we better do it this minute. <laughs> right. No, I really do. Because what, what we I'm got to say is, I think this midline has something to do with the stability of the crust of the planet, and because there's such an issue right now of a potential pole shift or a potential crustal shift, which a lot of your listeners are going to be very familiar with, I'm trying to find out as much as I can you know, about how that structure works. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's why the book is located in Italy, in Tuscany, and in Rome. Well, I was just I was surprised to learn things about within the story concerning concerning the damage that our country has done in regards to uh, getting involved in, in the wars and making them much worse. Uh, there's a lot I did not know. Uh, from that that standpoint, well, I need to get to. Well, let's get to. Let's get to. The, I'll call it crustal change, earth changes, pole mm-hmm. flips. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start it right now. What tell okay, us? Well, yeah, from a cyclical point of view, yeah. precession of the equinoxes. We're at the opposite point to the cataclysms uh, twelve, thirteen thousand years ago. Because, as you know, precession is a 26,000-year cycle. Mm-hmm. And we've come around now so that we're at the opposite point. And there is a tendency for um, pole shifting and crustal shifting to occur at that point. That's just a, a basically historical fact. Um, I personally, I don't want you to think that I worry about this because I don't. Because this is one of those things where what's the point of worrying? So I just don't worry about it. But at the same time, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about how this structure probably functions. Well, if if there is a pole flip, this is mega. Yeah, exactly. This is mega. This will. Yeah. This is and some pole shifts are are really totally catastrophic, and others aren't as catastrophic. Well, could you give us the best case scenario <laughs> from that standpoint? Well, um, for, uh, okay, I'm one of those people. I want to know what's going on. That's been my quest in this lifetime is to, is to figure out what's going on. And so one of the things that happens with this particular cycle is usually the poles uh, melt before there's actually a, a, a pole shift. And, and, and possibly, if it's just a pole shift, it's, it's not really a huge deal. But if a crustal shifting also occurs, then it's a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't, I, I don't know about you, I'm not going to sit around and worry about that. You know, I'm enjoying every day of my life and I'm exploring as much as I can. But here's where the information is useful. We've been handed a load of BS about climate change. Now, first of all, burning carbon in the atmosphere is not good for the atmosphere. So I'm not going to sit here and say we, we, should, we shouldn't attempt to um, slow down the carbon buildup. But what's lurking behind this is there is a cycle operating here, and the global elite knows all about it. And I feel like I ought to have that information, too. 
And so if they're not going to give it to the public, then I'm going to search it out myself, which is what a lot of the researchers are doing. Do you have, you know, on the Internet, um, there are so many stories right now on on the uh, pole shifts in Antarctica and um, Hitler down there in Antarctica, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have never seen uh, this come out. And also yeah. the, the the theory uh, of, of, of Zechariah Sitchin's theory yeah. of the of planet, uh, I've forgotten what he calls it right now. Planet X. Planet I, X. I find a lot of the stuff coming through Sitchin and Planet X and Nibiru, a lot of a lot of fear mongering. Well, it, it, I, I pretty much stay away from that, and I'm trying to understand the weather, the pole. You know, I'm tr- I'm doing this pretty much from a scientific point of view. Like, I want to know what's going on, and if they're finding something in Antarctica, I think we ought to have that information. Well, sure, sure. So that's where I'm coming from, and I don't sit around and worry about it because I really, first of all, I've had so many lifetimes on this planet. You know, I've 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 traced my own past lives and. So so we go up into another dimension, and then we come back again. It's, it's like it's no big deal to me. Yeah, that's on, yes. But I know for a lot of people, it, 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 it really sets up a lot of fear. But I think being lied to by the government, and, for example, okay, everybody had to replace their light bulbs because of climate change, right? Right. And what was the point of that? We know what the point of that was. It was so the light fixture man- manufacturers could make a whole lot of money, right? Well, they sure did. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, this is this is the reason I want to know what's going on. I don't want to be a fool, you know. Mm-hmm. And everything is set up to as a lie and, and to make us into fools. And see, that's part of where Trump's appeal comes from. For well, example, for now, is Trump Trump is refusing to go along with some of this stuff. Well, on the front page, he's there saying. Basically, forget about science and uh, forget about a lot of other things. Yeah. And right now, we can't forget about yeah. our break. Yeah. That's most important right now. Time out once again, friend. Our, this may be our last time out. Is that correct, boss? Yes, it is. My boss says so. Hello, this is Joanne Shenandoah. I'm a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter, Native American Music Award winner, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. I do remember this. Our guest tonight is Barbara Ann Clow, Revelations of the Aquarian Age, Bear in Company, www.handclow2000.com. No, 2012.com. Almost got that wrong. Jeez, oh whiz. All right, are you sitting up straight, Barbara? Yeah. Good going, yeah. Well, I really want to get back to something that we were that I think is central here. Why is Armando's pain of Jesus and Mary Magdalene a central theme? Okay. Um, it's a central theme. Um, I, I think I already explained this, but I'll go ahead and do it again. Um, what's happening is, Jennifer, uh, is Armando is transforming his consciousness from being kind of a low-level dog into a really fine man, and he marries. And, and right at the beginning of, um, of uh, Aquarian Age, we have the wedding with all of the characters showing up so we can be introduced to them. And then what happens is Armando is a very, very um, famous and serious Italian painter um, who, who loves to paint uh, visions of, of heaven, hell, and, and purgatory and all that kind of really re- Renaissance-type painting. And then what happens for him is all of 
all of that goes away for him, and then this vision of Jesus and Mary Magdalene comes through. And so what I'm doing in the novel is I'm showing how his relationship with his wife and his marriage Mm -hmm. takes him to the kind of level that I think um, we were meant to be given um, by Jesus as a teacher. Because Jesus' love of his wife um, is is a fundamental uh, part of his his, uh, uh, life on the planet. And fortunately, we've had Dan Brown come along. We've had, um, we've had, uh, you know, uh, was Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Fortunately, we're living in a time when there's a breakthrough happening regarding the real truth about Jesus. Now, because the reason they made him into a celibate is so they could set up the whole hierarchy with the bishops and the priests and the pope, the celibate hierarchy. And then the sexual, uh, then the, the celibate hierarchy, of course, has resulted in tremendous levels of abuse of children in the Catholic Church, which is the theme, that's the basic theme of Ruby Crystal. Well, uh, and the way she is looking at him and the way he's looking at her um, is is the experience of the oneness. Yeah. And that's what I was was really trying to push into understanding as as to why... um, Others would, would be unhappy about that because it seems to me that exploring uh, uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene as great lovers is, is a, an important thing to do in regards to with the teachings of true Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And it's really key. Yeah. And sexuality is such a fundamental part of our lives that the, the Catholic Church has created a really aberrant organization ultimately because of, of the um, manipulation of those levels of people's lives. And then the other thing about sexuality, of course, is it's the best um, personal tool that we have for reaching many dimensions. Indeed, it is. One of the reasons that religions uh, try to repress people's sexuality is because people can find the divine um, in their lives by means of sexual expression. And the churches want you to go sit in the church. Mm -hmm. Well, uh... They've not been too great, too successful in years to come. But then there is one, this is a question that may be taken out of order, but is important to me. The bee is a symbol of Artemis, the great goddess. Why does that matter? Um, well, the reason it matters is for the last 5,000 years, we've had the gradual um, elimination of the power of the feminine, of the power of the great goddess. And the problem with that is that the great goddess is actually nature. The great goddess is actually the expression of the planet um, through fertility and through um, creation. And so by having, we've had 5,000 years, basically, of patriarchal history, his story, history. Mm -hmm. And what's happening now as we go into the age of Aquarius is that the power of the feminine is rising. And I know that that's happening, Dr. Bob, because I'm, I'm a mother and I have four children. And I basically raised my four children, even though I have a wonderful husband, um, and, and we've been married 45 years. Um, you didn't hold your infants when you were a man. and You didn't, um, you know, uh, take care of your little children. And now the younger, the younger generation, my children, and probably your children, Things have changed so profoundly. Um, to see men caring for their infants and caring for their small children 
is one of the biggest um, anthropological changes that I've, I've seen, certainly in this lifetime, and I think for hundreds of years. There's a profound shift going on. Oh, it, it sure is. And, and... And, and that's how it happens. In other words, that's how change happens. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I needed to switch to fiction is I needed to show those changes happening with people in their everyday reality. I really needed to do that. Well, because I've had a you know really rich experience in this lifetime with my marriage and my family, and at this point at age seventy five, I've got a lot of wisdom. You know? And you certainly do. I mean, yes, indeed. Yeah. You know, my wife is going through a similar situation. She's written so many technical book technical books dealing with the uh, the Kabbalah and, and and other aspects of it. And um, now she wants to write fiction, and she likes wants to write about animals. Well, she her last. We're sending you a copy of her latest book on white animals and, and that kind of thing. But but right now, that's the kind of uh, writing that she wants to do is not factual, but fiction. And um, uh, I find it interesting that that uh, we're talking about that again right now, because it seems to be. I would have loved to have gone into fiction, right? But I'm not a good writer. Well, also, it's really hard to see. I I could make, I made it with hard work as a nonfiction writer, but boy, it's hard to make it in fiction. And the reason it's hard is because the whole market is manipulated by New York agents and New York publishers. Oh, how could you? Very hard to break through. How could you possibly say something like that? Oh, it's true. I know it is. No, I was a publisher for twenty years. That's okay? right. That's at, right. At Baron Company. Yeah. And Baron Company had five books which should have been on the New York Times bestseller list in terms of their sales. Mm-hmm. Never, not once. The whole market is manipulated. Well, then what they've done also is they degraded fiction. Like, like, let me ask you a question about reading my book. Were you taken in to, by the characters, and were you a part of experiencing this book? Yes, indeed. Because these are great characters. Yes, they are. And, and, and you don't get great characters through the basic um, crappy fiction that's, that's on the shelves. Well, that's why I should have read book one. Before. Well, you will. <laughs> well, I know, but but I should have, yeah. and, and because that would have introduced me to that that feeling, and that's that yeah. was the. Well, you, what you should do probably a paperback edition is going to come out pretty soon. They published it in hardcover, and that was not a good idea. That's that's not my vibe. Like Aquarian Age, as you know, is paperback, so they're going to re-release it in um, paperback, and it also had a fair number of errors because it was my first attempt where Aquarian Age is, be- is beautifully written. So oh, if, maybe if you wait, you might want to wait a little bit, possibly. Well, so, yeah, but I've got... You may want to read it, too. If you if you really love the characters and can stand a few typos, I'd read it, because it's really heartfelt. The first book is very heartfelt. Well, I'm certainly going to have to look into that, but yeah. for, before I do that, I must read The Lost Gospel. I've only gotten to the first 35 pages, and I just can't get... Did you read the whole thing? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Because... Uh, very, very good book. I was so excited about getting to uh, interview the, the people involved, and then yeah. we just got buried under everything else, and that makes oh, it possible. Yeah, 444 pages is a lot of pages to read yeah. in a week. Yeah. Uh, I can't do... I'm not that good at that. I'm a slow reader. Yeah. Because I enjoy... Are you? Because that's lucky for me. Because of my job, I'm a speed reader. Oh, how fortunate. Yeah. 
that helps a lot. Yeah, there's two things I mi- missed in my life. One, speed reading and learning how to speak Spanish. I was forced to take seven years of French because they told me that <laughs> that was the future. That was the future language That's from diplomatic language. It never yeah. happened at all. And now I, after seven years of French, I, I, I'm not that good at it, obviously. Well, um, exploring Jesus and Mary, um, and, uh, Mary Magdalene as great lovers is a big theme. Um, do you want to elaborate on this, Any? Well, um, as far as, as I can see, and there are so many theories about who Mary Magdalene really was, and I think that I think that uh, I take kind of a, a broad view. I take a little bit from this writer and a little bit from that writer and everything, but I do think it's clear that she was a priestess of the goddess, and um, that just because with what Jesus was teaching, this would have been his 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 proper um, partner um, in life. And then the anointing scene, of course, where she anoints him, um, is, is a, a, of course, a goddess um, teaching. So I think, basically, um, I think that um, he, I think he came to this planet at the beginning of the age of Pisces in order to emphasize how important that male-female joining is. And that doesn't leave out people who are gay or whatever uh, practice people have. It's just that that particular joining and and the pr- production of, of children is just is just a special um, category on this planet, if you want to call it that. Of course. And I think yeah. it's, it's central. It's the it's the big teaching. We all come from it, after all. We all have mothers and we all have fathers, regardless of what anybody um, is going to practice in a given lifetime. And of course, I'm a proponent, of of course, of of, of reincarnation in many lifetimes. And I think that's another important part of life is to realize that in any given lifetime, you don't have to do everything. The problem with this one lifetime mentality is it makes it way too difficult for people to feel like they're living their life the way they should be living their life. Yeah. Because you have to look at the whole spectrum of all of the lifetimes. This one lifetime is just not the most important thing. That's right. That's yeah. true. Uh, it's a hard thing, especially... Um, talking to children about it i haven't found the right words uh for that especially when they're younger uh that you know you don't you can't do everything you, you yeah. want to do in this particular lifetime and it wasn't necessarily supposed to be that way yeah. uh you're just picking up from where you and that's that's what's so good about your writing here when you when you get into these various people all the various characters you're seeing, you're watching them develop and how they're developing. And especially, I liked when they all got get together, this Italian family getting together and teaching each other. Yeah. You know, but each each one of them specializes in a certain knowledge or information, and it's wouldn't that be thrilling to have? I mean, yeah. That would and, be thrilling. And, yeah, and also um, some of the background for this novel comes from my experiences with Italians. Oh, you know, this is coming from people who live like that and who live like that right now. And, of course, that none of them will be revealed or the location of any of them will be revealed. But Italians, um, and again, it may be that midline. It may be the power of that planetary midline. But they have held on more strongly um, than most other countries to bioregionalism, for example, Italian food. And when you go to Italy, you can just eat great food all the time because everybody's making and growing their own food. Yeah, 
Yes, you know, indeed. and this is going to be a critical issue as right now we're in a big struggle over bioregionalism versus globalism. And that's one of the reasons that Trump got in. And if Hillary had gotten in and continued, it would have just been a race for globalism. But there's a lot of people who don't agree with that. So setting it in Italy was interesting because Italy is still one of the places on the planet that's very bioregional. I have to stop you there because we've run out of time. We've run out of time, Barbara. You've got to join us again All in right. the future and not 25 years later or yeah, something like that. Thank you for joining us, Barbara. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and remember, shine your shoes and get a haircut.